right, well, we're going to take a look at this final message in the series Unleashed. And basically what we've been talking about this whole time is how the church was unleashed in the book of Acts and how they, they lived so radically different that they actually turned their world right side up, made that big of an impact uh, in the church in a short period of time as well. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to be mainly in Acts chapter 15 for just a few verses, but call this kind of more of an overview, a survey of what we've already talked about. So if you got in here and you didn't get your sermon notes, slip up your hand, Richard will run those over to you, and you'll be able to to track and follow along this morning. Here's what I've titled this. I've titled this, How to Not Be Unleashed. Looking at some things that had the church, had the Christians in the book of Acts not done these things then uh, they wouldn't have been unleashed to really impact the way that they impacted. Now, let me give a little, just a little uh, preview of where we're going with this. There have been many times in the life of the church, not just Wendover Hills Church, but the church in general, the universal church, there's been many times in the life of the church where they've come up against a crossroads. And these crossroads were times when they had to decide if they were going to continue something that had been very significant to the church up to that point. And they would have criteria that would tell them, do we continue this? Do we not continue this? That's what we're going to look at here in Acts chapter 15. There was one of these crossroads that they've hit. Let me give you kind of uh, an example. Early on in the life of the church, after the book of Acts had finished up, right about in the second century, there were several writings that came out that were actually titled Gospels. In fact, Gospels of characters you know, but they weren't actually written by those characters because they were written in the second century and those characters were all dead. These were like Gospels of Judas, Gospels of Philip. Gospel of Mary. These are just some of the titles uh, that we find there. And so you could actually uh, look these up. I own some of the books if you're ever interested in, in looking at them. And basically there was this thought that came out in the second century. It wasn't invented in the second century, but it came out heavily through some of these extra gospels that was really at its core this thought of universalism. If you're not familiar with that, basically what it means is it doesn't really matter what you believe about Jesus Christ and about God. We're all going to get to heaven eventually anyway. So whether you believe Jesus, follow Jesus, do the I, I'm the way, the truth, and the life verse or not, we're all going to heaven eventually. Everyone gets there. In fact, in some universalists, because uh, uh, it's a broad belief system, there's certain paths you would have to go on, and then there's other paths. But eventually, you all kind of get to the same location because we have a loving God who would never not accept anyone into heaven. That's the overview, the general message that came out in the second century. Well, you, you could understand how this was a big problem for some of the believers who had grown up, uh, especially out of, out of Paul's ministry journeys, those churches, this was a big problem. And so this problem persisted all the way up in the church to the 4th century in 325 AD when the church decided we need to sit down and write out exactly what we believe. And so we get these first uh, of these creeds that we remember, um, and it's called the Nicene Creed. And it was written down at that time. Now, there was, there was some, uh, actually some changes and some shortening of some of those creeds. So you might know the word Nicene 
attached to something else than the word creed. But this originally Nicene Creed came in 325 when Christianity basically became legal. All right? And this was written down. We believe in God the Father. Now, Almighty, maker of heaven, maker of earth. Now, that might sound familiar to you. You've heard songs that, that actually sing through the Nicene Creed. And that was put into script. Why? Because the church was at a crossroads. They had to decide, look, are we going to let this universalism work into what we believe? Because it was a very common and very popular belief system. It is today as well. The church said, no, no, this is so important. Our theology on what we believe about God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit is so important. We're going to stop, we're going to write this down, and we're going to make it very clear to everyone that when we say the word Christian, this is what we mean. And so that was a crossroads in the life of the church. There's another crossroads that happened, and you remember it around the time of Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther during the Reformation days. In fact, what basically happened is the church had reached a point where the, uh, uh, these things that they would do, uh, like penance type of things, if you do this, you'll be forgiven for this. Now, for us in our church in this day and age, we basically understand the scripture to say, seek forgiveness of your sins and you'll be forgiven. Wasn't as simple back then. In fact, at this point, it had become such a big deal that you had to actually pay certain amounts or buy certain objects or certain pieces of paper that would absolve you from certain sins. And it was even more complex that in order to be absolved from certain sins, you actually had to go receive these from certain cities within the, the, uh, within the, the empire at the time. Um, and so you could see how incredibly complex it was for the average person to go find full forgiveness of their sins. And even if they, they could do that, that, the control that they were under, being told you've got to do this, oh, you didn't quite do that right, so do this, and this was a crossroads for the church. And Martin Luther rose up and he said, no, you know what we're going to do? We're going to translate the scripture into the common tongue so that every single person out there can open up the book and they can read the scripture for themselves and they can understand that forgiveness comes when we get on our knees and we seek forgiveness from God and he forgives us. And that this whole penance thing is, is just really just a fun, friend raiser system. And so Martin Luther King, that's what he set out to do. It came at great price. Great price. In fact, if you ever want to see a pretty good depiction of this, of this story, this crossroads in the life of the church, rent the movie it's simply called Luther. It came out, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago. And a pretty good depiction of this story you'll find in there. Some would say that we're kind of at a crossroads today in some stuff. Let me tell you about a crossroads in 1985. All right? 1985, there was a small church. It was in um, Utah, of all places. You, don't, uh, you often think of Utah as more like Latter-day Saint and Mormons, but a small church in Utah that uh, made news because they had decided that a new pastor coming was preaching out of the wrong scripture. Well, that would sound like a big problem, right? If you hired a new pastor and he's preaching in some you know, foreign scripture to you. Well, let me tell you what really was occurring. The pastor was reading a new translation that came out in 1984 called the New International Version of the Bible. About a, about a year later from when it came out, and he's reading from this translation. This church had only recognized the King James Version of the Bible, and so this actually made 
headwaves and made news, and they actually had kind of a, a church conference. Now, when we have church conferences, they don't necessarily make the news, and how this one did, I'm not quite sure. But the issue at hand for the church was, do we need to fire, send out this pastor? And they actually wanted, uh, in their system, it's not our denominational system, in their system to pull his credentials uh, at the time. Uh, it was that serious, so they had this kind of conference um, what, how it came about, how it resolved, I don't really know how it was resolved. I know the pastor moved on. Um, that was a time the church didn't quite uh, make any creeds. Um, there was no great reformation at that time because they recognized the church probably just wasn't quite getting that this was a very acceptable translation. We've been using it now for 30 plus years uh, uh, in our church, or 30 years um, in our churches uh, here. We come to crossroads in these things. And that is what we're talking about this morning, that the church is coming to a crossroads. They're looking at this issue that comes up, and they're now having to decide, what do we do with this issue? So, if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 15, it's called the Council at Jerusalem. You'll find the story in the book of Acts, and then if you want to find more of the story, because Paul writes letters to the churches that he visits, then read the book of Galatians uh, in your Bible, and you'll kind of find how these two uh, interact. Acts would be the history part, and then Galatians would be the letter that Paul wrote that has to do with this as well. It says this, while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judah arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is the crossroads. You see, remember what we talked about where Paul was out preaching the gospel, mainly to Jewish people to start, but then shared with Gentiles. And then he reached a point where he was not only sharing with Gentiles, but he was sharing exclusively with Gentiles. Pause for just a second in case you're lost. The Jewish people would have been those that were called by God in the Old Testament. God revealed himself to them. He was their people. Hebrews in the Old Testament, Israelites in the Old Testament, Jewish is usually the New Testament word. They're all kind of the same. Whether you use the term Hebrew or Israelite in the Old Testament, we're talking about the same people there. Now, when we say Israeli today or Israelite, that's not the same. So do you know the difference? Israeli and Israelite today? Yeah? Yeah, Israelite has a, a third fewer calories than Israeli. But I don't appreciate that at all. I don't appreciate that one bit. I'm walking out of here. So the Jewish people were called by God. They owned this heritage from the Old Testament all the way up. And here was Paul and Peter as well. And the audacity of these guys to go and to preach the gospel to non-Jewish people and share with them about Jesus Christ. And then that they would accept Jesus. They would accept the message of Christ. And then the audacity that they never actually got circumcised as God asked of his people in the Old Testament. This was a big crossroads. This is a big, big problem in the church. And so this comes all the way to this council in Jerusalem where some come up and say, unless you're circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what do they do? They have to decide now, what, what do we do in this situation here? So as we talk about this, I want to share with you three ways that I believe on how not to be unleashed. 
if we don't want to unleash ourselves, live our lives out for Jesus Christ, make an impact the way the people in the book of Acts made an impact, I think these three things would come to mind, and they work out of this issue that we're just talking about. Number one is this. We seek to make the gospel too complicated. Seek to make the gospel too complicated. Do you know what it means to make something too complicated? Have you ever played a game and it just has too many rules? And it's just hard to play it because of the rules. Or maybe you listen to kids and they're making up games or they're making up things and then someone will make up a rule on what you can or can't do, usually because, you know, that it benefits them. It helps them out and they make that. Um, that's overcomplicating something. You see, this issue in the Council of Jerusalem, what Paul would have been arguing here, saying with this, is you're making it too complicated. The Gentiles clearly, by faith, said yes to Jesus Christ. Why would we put the law of Moses in the Old Testament that was given to the Jews in the Old Testament, why would we put that law of Moses on top of them? Pause for just a second. You're saying in your head, wait a second, Tom, do you mean that we should not obey any of the law of Moses? Like the Ten Commandments means nothing uh, in the Old Testament? Not what we're talking about. In fact, it wouldn't have been what Paul was talking about. There was two different laws. It was clear to, to any Jewish person growing up that there was a moral code that was built into the Old Testament, and then there was a ceremonial law as well. A moral code was basically, this is who you are. This is who we are as human beings, and we follow these. God handed these things to us. The Ten Commandments would fit into those. Now, remember the most important before that, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the crux of all of it the moral code. But there was also the ceremonial law as well. There was this law that was handed down, and it basically it was God saying, I want to give you culture, and I want to help you protect yourselves in the time that you live, and I want to set you apart from other groups. And so God gave them certain laws that they lived by because of this to set them apart. We would recognize that some of these things do not necessarily pertain to us today. Now, women, during your period of the month, you are not put out of the town, outside of Greensboro, where you have to live out there in a tent by yourself for however long until you are deemed clean again. And then you can come back and join us all in Greensboro. We understand that doesn't how it works. But that was part of the Old Testament law. That was part of it, and for a very significant reason then. Not so much for us today. Now, some of you, I noticed even as you were coming in this morning, you bear a, a few, uh, a little bit of ink on your body. I've seen it on some of your arms and legs and neck. Um, according to the Old Testament, um, you, you are considered pagan and really have no avenue back into the church. So um, if you would just get up and leave right now and cl <laughs> cleanse us of who you are, that would be helpful for us this morning and we could continue on with all of us holy ones. We recognize that that was a significant thing in the Old Testament that set their people apart, but it doesn't necessarily pertain to us today. And so that's how the law worked. Here's what, here is what Paul is arguing. He's saying, look, this circumcision, this was to set you apart in the Old Testament. This was to set God's people apart but this was not part of this moral code that was to be part of us forever. And so he was saying, you're making the gospel too complicated. Too complicated here. 
Here's what he says in in verse 2. It says, Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to let Paul and Barnabas, uh, send Barnabas to, uh, excuse me, send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. Now, we've been studying this for the last 11 weeks, and we recognize that when Paul is allowed to uh, have a group that he can go talk to, he usually does a pretty good job of persuasion and of talking. So now Paul is going to go talk, him and Barnabas, and that's exactly what they're gonna, going to share. So here's what Paul and them come to the conclusion. It's in verse 9 here. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Basically, what they're saying is you're making the gospel too complicated. What is the gospel? Think about the words of Jesus again. That when we turn our lives to Christ, when we turn our lives and we surrender and we believe in the name of God, that we're, we're forgiven. And we're forgiven of our sins and we have right relationship with God. It's that simple. A seminary professor used to say, what's the least common denominator for somebody to come to know Christ? To be called a Christian. And he says it's three simple words. Jesus is Lord. That when I can, by faith, and I can mean it heartfelt when I say Jesus, that's claiming somebody, that's claiming the person of Christ, is, that's an active thing. The Lord Jesus is Lord. Lord is a a phrase that means a whole lot if we were to confess that. Lord means I bow to you. I serve you. I honor you. I follow you. When I can claim that Jesus is Lord, the least common denominator to somebody coming to know Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that God doesn't want to build them up and grow them and teach them from that point? Absolutely not. In fact, it's been said many times the phrase that he loves us too much to leave us where we're at. I think that's true, even though there's not a perfect verse that matches up with those words. Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul and Peter are arguing, Paul and Barnabas are arguing, that these have claimed Jesus as their Lord. They are believers. They are Christians. And from now, let's let the Christian growth process play out. But to turn to them and now say, you're not Christians, or you're Christians mostly, but now if you could just do this as well, then you're good. Now, what was so appealing in the book of Acts about this Christianity thing? Well, the community was appealing. The life change was appealing to them as well. The circumcision wasn't overly appealing. Like, that wasn't the thing that drew people into the kingdom here. And Paul's saying, look, we don't need to require that. That's not what the law of Moses is teaching anyway. Did you know that uh, Jesus had an issue sometime with people overcomplicating the gospel? Jesus would speak this way, and there was, in fact, a group of religious leaders who would continually make it too complicated, the gospel. In fact, one time Jesus was talking to these guys, and he says in Matthew 23, 15, probably one of the harshest things Jesus says, he says this, For you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. What is he saying? You seek for a convert, somebody comes to know Jesus, somebody is converted, and then what do you do? You make it so impossible for them to actually live out the Christian life. You put rule after rule after rule on top of this thing. That was the job of the Pharisees. It's not so bad that they had that job, but it's what they were doing with it. And Jesus comes so far to call them a child of hell. Maybe your translation says twice the sons of hell that you are. 
Either way, pretty powerful statement Jesus is saying. What is he saying? Don't make this too complicated. Too complicated. Here's a couple ways I think we do this sometimes in the church. That when somebody comes in or becomes a Christian, whether in the church or without, we might sneak an extra requirement on them that maybe Jesus didn't require himself. In fact, a a professor in seminary, Robert Tuttle, would say often to me, you can never require more on somebody than Jesus required on that person. What is he really saying? Don't overcomplicate. Don't add too much. We have to allow the, the process of growth to play out in people's lives when they become Christians. But here's another way, I think. Sometimes in the church, we seek, um, we call it depth sometimes. We seek more and more information about Christianity, more and more of that type of information, forgetting to put into practice the simple things we already know about the faith. What is the faith? I think about the verse I just told you about that's reiterated by Christ in the New Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's a simple core of the gospel, that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because of that, we go and we love others the way we love ourselves. That's pretty powerful, pretty powerful statement. Now, deep in that, you might look, if you're looking at it from an informational mindset, is I'm going to learn every can, everything I can about that passage. I'm going to break down the Greek words. I'm going to just get as much information as I can. And you might be wired that way, and that's, that's a good thing. Um, study is never bad. But more information in higher academics doesn't necessarily equate to depth. Depth is when we put it into practice. Take that verse we just said. Think about in the Old Testament, Cain and Abel. Why did God reject Cain's sacrifice? It wasn't his best. He didn't bring his best. He wasn't thinking, loving the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. He just brought some of what he had, and God rejected that type of sacrifice. Jesus, when he says, love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's in the same way saying, look, bring God your best. Bring him the best that you have. Surrender to him and bring him the best. But Jesus adds on to it, love your neighbor as yourself, doesn't he? Well, what would that mean? I should probably take my neighbor some really good as well. I probably shouldn't just give them the leftover that I have that I'm not using myself. I should probably give them the best of what I have left after I give to God. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, love them as you love yourself. You see, that's depth. That's how does it play out? How do I actually live out this simple principle? How do I learn more and more? It was Professor Tuttle who also said this, depth is giving everything you know of yourself to everything you know of God. As you learn more about yourself, you surrender it to God. And as you learn more about God, then you learn more about yourself as well and how you interact with him. So we don't want to make the gospel incredibly complicated. What we don't want to hear today is that you shouldn't be studying and making it deep. We shouldn't be having discipleship programs for new believers to grow deeper in their faith. But we want to make sure that we're allowing them to live out the gospel and learn the gospel. Here's number two. Creating an us-versus-them mentality. Do you know what an us-versus-them mentality is? It's, you know us versus them. It often plays out, I think, like I'm thinking about a work situation that I used to have where there was four of us that were working and we were writing little 
you know those little skip loaders that you ride around in a warehouse and you can put a pallet on them and build up the pallet, take it to the truck? That's what we did. And there was four of us that were working and then two that were hired on as they expanded the crew. And what did we have right away? An us versus them mentality. Why? I have no idea why. I don't know why. We had only been working like six extra months than those, those two that were hired. There was something natural that seemed right about having an us versus them mentality. Well, we've been around a while. You know, I've been taking my breaks in those chairs for like, you know, three weeks. So it's mine. You know, it just, there's something natural, it feels like, on developing an us versus them mentality. And Paul is basically talking about the same thing. Uh, verse 3 here. The church sent some delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way of Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that Gentiles, too, were being converted. Now, let me make sure I set the stage for you. If you're a Jewish person, right, and you start to hear that this gospel is being received by Gentiles, non-Jewish people, you have to understand who we're talking about here. The Gentile, or excuse me, the, the Jews, for one, hated Samaritans. We're talking about Samaritans becoming believers in Jesus Christ. That's, that's rough, rough thinking for them. To, to understand that there are some of these groups that we've been adamantly opposed to for my whole entire life, and now they've come to know Jesus, so now we're brothers and sisters in Christ, as Paul keeps calling them. That's a pretty rough thought for them to wrap their heads around. And so it was very easy for them to say, well, they're believers, but there's this us versus them type of mentality that would go on. And because of that, we would now like to require several things of them that they do, mainly because there's an us versus them mentality, so they need to do this in the warehouse. Uh, I've been here longer, you're newer, so you need to do whatever that I say. On a sports team, have you ever been to a game and you've seen like one player and they're walking around with like a Dora the Explorer backpack or hat on? That's not because that player thinks it's cool. It's because that player is brand new and it was required of them by the veteran players for that day to go around. Sometimes extravagant to degrees what they make a newbie do. Us first them mentality can happen just about anywhere. Paul battled this everywhere he went. In fact, if you really want to get a feel for this battle in your own Bible study time, take the book of Romans and start to read Romans 1 through 6. And this is what you're going to see. You're going to see Paul, he comes in and he starts talking to Jewish believers. And he starts to, to trace their whole history of how they came to know Christ, what the Old Testament says about being believers, and then he's going to say, doesn't it sound like Gentiles could do the same thing here? So once he gets them saying yes to what, how they became believers, then he could say, well, doesn't it sound like Gentiles could do the same? There's no, there's no requirement that says they could. Well, they have to say yes, and then he starts walking them down the path of how a Gentile as well could become a Christian. Read those first six chapters, and you'll be blown away by Paul's argument and what he has to do. What is he really doing in Acts 1 through 6? He is arguing against the us versus them type of mentality. Here's what, here's what he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. And you are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. That in itself is a hard statement for the Jews to put their head around, that Gentiles are called 
to belong to Jesus Christ? That's what he says. I'm writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and are called to be his own holy people. So that's a message of Paul battling against this, this us versus them mentality. And that's basically what he's saying is going on in the book of Acts, chapter 15 here, is if you require this on them, you're really accentuating this us versus them. You're making them do this simply because you're, you're a little frustrated that they can become believers as well. And that doesn't make sense at all. I wonder if at the core of this us versus them mentality, and we create it sometimes in our own life, I wonder if at the core really is selfishness. It's really a feeling of maybe I'm getting gypped or they're getting something that I have or something I had. If there's really at the core some selfishness that goes on that causes us to think this way. Donald Miller had a powerful quote that hit me hard this week. It's from his book called Blue Like Jazz, and here's what it says. The most difficult lie I have ever contended with is this. Life is a story about me. It's his way of saying that to understand that, that everything doesn't revolve around me, my perspective and what I think, the most difficult lie I've ever contended with. Us versus them, it can sneak up on us, and I think it goes fast when we think about ourselves first. Finally, here's a clear, easy one, and almost a dust statement for you, but we'll share it anyway. Don't share about Jesus. At the beginning of this book, the very first week, we said that Jesus said that you are my witnesses. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You're going to go out, my witnesses, and basically you're going to be my witnesses everywhere is what he's talking about here. If we want to not be unleashed, if we want to have no impact for the kingdom of God, it's simple. Don't share about Jesus. Just don't share about him at all. Sometimes we think, well, I'll just live out the Christian life and I'll just, you know, I'll be a good Christian, but I probably won't ever really talk about Jesus. The book of Acts would teach us it's hard to be a good Christian and not talk about Jesus. Now, we've said throughout this series that we're not meaning you have to carry around your soapbox, you don't have to preach on the street corner, you don't have to hand out the little four spiritual laws everywhere you go. That's not what we're talking about. The Lord opens up opportunities for us to just share about Jesus. This week I got an email from somebody here in the church, and uh, actually I got a prayer card first, and it said, God is good, answered prayer, and it shared about what um, was going on. I emailed just to get a little follow-up on what was going on, and I basically got this testimony email of all God was doing in their life right now, and in their life since they started coming to Windover Hills uh, uh, several months back. It was a testimony. Guess what that person was doing? They're sharing Jesus. Now, I'm their pastor, I know Jesus, but it was still warming to me to read that email. What would happen if God opened up the opportunity for that person to share that story with somebody else? Probably something pretty good. Now, knowing this person, they've probably done that already. But that's what we're talking about when sharing Jesus. We just tell somebody, look, here's what Jesus did in my life when I dealt with that circumstance, and, and here's where I found freedom in that, and we share about Jesus. Here's what Paul did right after this council ended, and the council ended with basically the church in Jerusalem saying, you know, we're not going to require circumcision. They required a couple things uh, on, the, on the Gentile believers, and then they released Paul. And Paul, here's what he did immediately. It says, on the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer, and we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. And 
uh, one of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. As she listened to them, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized. That's what we find that Paul did immediately after this council at Jerusalem, this arguing on behalf of the faith. He just went right out and shared with somebody else who became a Christian and their whole, their whole household was baptized. Why? It's just in and who Paul is. As a believer in Christ, Paul just believed, I share about Jesus Christ. Now, Paul might have had a better preaching ability than you might. Paul, maybe he felt like he could put together logical, theological under, uh, statements better than you may feel like you, like, you, you can. But basically what he's saying is just share about Jesus. Just go out and share Jesus with people. Here's what Pope Francis once said. Jesus teaches us another way. Go out. Go out and share your testimony. Story about you. Go out and interact with your brothers. Go out and share. Go out and ask. Become the word in body as well as spirit. If there's anything we want to do that would quelch our opportunity to be unleashed as a church, we need to just be quiet about Jesus. We just need to be real quiet about Jesus. We need to buy into the mindset that I'll just kind of live a good moral life, but I don't want to ever actually say anything about Jesus because this is just a personal thing. The book of Acts would teach us totally different. It would say you live your life and you're going to live it so radically that you're going to help turn the world right side up. And many times we're going to do that with our words as well when we've earned the opportunity with our life. Can I tell you right now, I am working really hard. I, I would love your prayers. At my gym that I go to, just a small gym, few members that go to it, I am working really hard to earn the opportunity to sit and talk with them about Jesus. A couple little opportunities open, open up, but, but I can't see where God has flung the door. But I'd certainly love to see it happen because I just believe strongly I have to share Jesus with those people that are there. I, I mean, they're just great people anyway. I enjoy them but I need to share Jesus with them. Do you have that environment or that person that you just say, I got to share Jesus with them. I got to find a way to share Jesus with this person. I want to pray for you the same way that I'm asking you to pray for me. Here's the takeaway this morning. It'll be impossible to be used by Jesus unless you understand that you're worthy and gifted to be used. It's important to understand that. Whoever you are, whatever you're at right now, whatever you do, whether you think your job is incredibly significant for God's kingdom or not, is irrelevant. God will use you and can use you where you're at right here and right now to be unleashed, to share with other people. You know, there's some people out there that you're working with that you're thinking, I, I, I don't know how to walk them through the sinner's prayer and talk to them about that, but I do... I do know how to help them understand that the gospel is not as complicated as they might think it is. And you might say, I, I do know how to help them understand that it's not an er us versus them, like Christians versus them mentality out there, and, and that you can change that. And then one day, maybe you earn the opportunity. You know, I, I, if you're like me, it's, it's, uh, it can be uncomfortable and awkward sometimes. That's when we just sit back and say, God, show me how you want to use me. And then finally this, it's just the call to be unleashed and to make an impact for his kingdom. 
I think if we keep asking ourselves, Lord, what impact do you want me to make for my kingdom, that the answer that comes, if we're willing to follow it out, that is us being unleashed. And so uh, there's a song that we had sung a few times. It worked really well in our last year's theme when we called it The Stand. And I want to invite you this morning, just as a song of response to this whole series of being unleashed, I want to invite you to take that stand in your faith, in your walk for Christ, to be unleashed, to live out to whatever principle we talked about in the last 12 weeks. This week was just one of them. To own that, to be that, and let God work in and through you in that area. And so if I've invited our praise team as a song of response this morning, that they would just lead us through it. You can sit quietly and sing that this morning. If you feel like it's just like a declaration of you standing for Christ and you want to stand and sing it, please have the freedom to interact however you want this morning. But this is specifically a song of response, responding in my heart. So would you hear the words as you're singing it this morning? <laughs> 